We're back into Hebrews today. And I was, I've been reading Hebrews chapter 7. I listened to Ian's two sermons that I missed on Hebrews chapter 6. And, um, and he said at the beginning, he thought, you know, it was a bit funny that I'd organise a series and he'd landed the difficult chapter. Uh, to be honest with you, when I set the series up, I landed the difficult chapter, but um, after Jai had preached, we could shuffle things around a bit, so um, I thought the bit that I looked at was a nice, concise hole, which left Ian, a really difficult chapter, pushed back a week. So um, thank you very much for that, um, just to make sure you know that uh, there was some cunning in there as well. Um, so Hebrews chapter 7 is a really, really interesting chapter, and you know, let's have a quick recap of what we've done. So we know that the book of Hebrews is written to a group of Christians who have been converted out of Judaism but they're thinking of giving up Christianity and going back to Judaism. We also know from chapter 6 and the end of chapter 5 that they're dull of hearing, that they're not really giving it that much attention, they're not really um, putting in that much effort. They're making no progress as Christians, which has been part of the theme through the book, but particularly in chapter, the end of 5 and chapter 6, there's a big rebuke in there and a big warning, and then there's some encouragements at the end. And also, I think it's fair to say that the Hebrews, the people this book is written to, are really lacking in their assurance from God that God is going to come through for them, that they will be saved in the end if they press on uh, with Jesus and their faith in Jesus. Because, I say that because if they knew that, if they had that fixed in their mind, if they were dead certain that their assurance is guaranteed, their salvation is guaranteed, that Jesus loves them no matter what they do, then there's no way that they would want to turn away or fall back or give up on him or drift from him because there's nowhere better for them to be. So, let's come to chapter 7. I've given it this title. There are no rucksacks. And I will explain that as we get through. But um, I was toying with different ideas and this one is the one I think that... um, it kind of makes sense. However, the eagle-eyed uh, person in the chair may notice, even though it says there are no rucksacks, there is a rucksack just there. So, they're metaphorical rucksacks. Uh, that is a metaphysical rucksack. So, um, don't get too mixed up. That's real. Not fake or imaginary. So, just so you know, that's where we are. So, there's three main themes I want to look at in Hebrews chapter 7. And they kind of answer the three things that are going wrong with the Hebrews. So the people that are wanting to give up Christianity and head back to Judaism. One of the themes. The, the first one is, in Christianity, the priesthood in Christianity is so much better than the priesthood in Judaism. The writer doesn't say that the Jewish priesthood is rubbish and a waste of space or anything like that. He says, look, it was good but the new priesthood is what that one pointed to. This is like the icing on the delicious cake. This is the best priesthood you could ever come across. So why would you want to go back to the old one? Okay, the second one? Overtaking. I was going to use the word supersession, but it didn't fit on the slide, so I've gone for overtaking. Um, He talked in chapter 7 about the law of Moses, the covenant, the old covenant, and the priests. And he said how all these things have been overtaken, not by something that is better, but by something that is best. All those things have been overtaken by something that is best. And then for those people who are lacking in their assurance of God, they need an answer, I think, to this question. What is Jesus up to? If they know what Jesus is up to, then they may have a 
massive key to their assurance. And lastly, their last theme is uh, one of rucksacks, but we will get to that by the end. So if you want to turn with me to the Bible, firstly, we're going to read a few verses from Genesis chapter 14. If you've got Hebrews open, stick your thumb in there and flick back to Genesis chapter 14. which is on page 15 of the Red Church Bible. And we're going to start at verse uh, 17. And we're just going to read to the end of the chapter. We're not going to read from Genesis 14 to the end of Hebrews 7, because that will take us forever. But feel free to do that this week. That's homework. So, uh, Genesis chapter 14, verse 17, says, After Abraham, that's Abraham, returned from defeating uh, Kedorlaomer and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh, that is, the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abraham, saying, Blessed be Abraham, by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the people, and keep the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord, God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and I have taken an oath, that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the thong of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abraham rich. I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten and the share that belongs to the men who went with me to Anna, Eshkol and Mamre. Let them have their share. Okay. Now that may seem like a really weird passage just to pick out. But when you flick to Hebrews chapter 7, which you may get to just before me, it's all about this chap, Melchizedek, who only turns up in Genesis 14, but he has already been mentioned a couple of times in Hebrews already, saying that Jesus will be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And um, the writer to the Hebrews says to them earlier on in the book, look, I want to talk to you about this guy Melchizedek, but I can't because you've made no progress. You don't really have a clue what's really going on. So I can't talk to you about that. And then he goes into his rebuke, and then he talks about stuff he did in chapter 6, and then he encourages them, and then he gets back onto his theme of Melchizedek because he couldn't put it on the back burner because it was so exciting for him to write about that he had to do it. So we're going to read Hebrews chapter 7, then we'll pray, and then we'll... Um, get through my nine pages of notes. So Hebrews chapter 7, page 1205, if you've not found it. It says, This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He met Abraham, returning from the defeat of the kings, and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, his name means king of righteousness. Then also, king of Salem means king of peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, like the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Just think how great he was. Even the patriarch Abraham 
gave him a tenth of the plunder. Now the law requires the descendants of Levi, who become priests, to collect a tenth from the people. That is their brothers, even though their brothers are descended from Abraham. This man, however, did not trace his descendant from Levi, yet he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him who had the promise, uh, had these promises. And without doubt, the lesser person is blessed by the greater. In the one case, the tenth is collected by men who die, but in the other case, by him who is declared to be living. One might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth through Abraham, because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. Perfection could have been attained. So if perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, from the base of the law uh, was given the people. Why was there still need for another priest to come, one in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron? For when there is a change of the priesthood, there must also be a change of the law. He, of whom these things are said, belonged to a different tribe, and no one from that tribe has ever served at the altar. For it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah, and in regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. And what we have said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears. One who has become a priest, not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. For it has been declared, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect, and a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. Others became priests without, uh, without any oath, but he became a priest with an oath. When God said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. Because of this, uh, this oath, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. Now, there have been many of those, uh, many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest meets our need. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins, and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who are weak, but the oath which came after the law appointed the Son, who has been made perfect forever. Amen. Hey, there's a lot of stuff in there. Hopefully we'll uh, make some sense of it. So let's pray, and then we'll, we'll go through it. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Father, we thank you for, for the Bible that is living and true and amazing. Father, I thank you that it speaks to us all the time of Jesus. Father, I thank you that this passage brings us straight to him. Father, I thank you that yeah, Jesus is the one that you want us to, to glorify, the one you want us to look at, the one you want us to point towards. Um, Father, I pray that as we look at this chapter today and uh, look at your word, Father, you would make Jesus seem amazing to us. 
Father, I pray that you would do that uh, here today and in our lives day by day. Amen. Okay. So the first theme was this idea of priesthood. And Melchizedek comes in pretty early on in this chapter. And then he comes in in the second word. He says, this Melchizedek. And that's kind of like, who is this chap? And he goes on to describe him. And he says that he's the king of Salem, which means king of righteousness. He's the king of peace. Then it says he's without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life. Like the son of God, he remains a priest forever. And you read back in Genesis 14. You read that account. He's this guy that just knocks up, chats to Abraham. Abraham recognises him as a kind of servant of God, gives him a tithe, and then they part company. And here, in the book of Hebrews, the writer to the Hebrews references him. So, first of all, the question is, what is he? There's an awful lot of stuff written about uh, who and what Melchizedek is. So there are some, there are some options. Um, some people say that he's kind of this angelic being. So they could be kind of an angel because it says there's no, you know, there's no genealogies, no end to life, there's no start to life, there's no father or mother. Um, so he could be an angel. Some people say that he could even be a kind of pre-incarnate Jesus. So he could have been Jesus before Jesus was born. Um, so, or he could just be a normal bloke in Genesis chapter 14. And some people might think that he was a cat or a dog, something like that. I don't know, but that's you know, up to you. I think it doesn't say anywhere that he's an angel. It doesn't kind of give the picture that he's an angel at all anywhere. Some people think that he might be Jesus. Uh, but in Hebrews chapter 7, it says he's like the Son of God rather than he was the Son of God or was a picture of the Son of God or anything like that. So I don't think he is Jesus before Jesus was around. I think that he was a normal ordinary human being like you and me, apart from the fact that he was a king and he was a priest. And they're really important things. So he was a king of Salem, which could have been Jerusalem, uh, which means uh, peace, and his name also means king of righteousness. And the only thing we know, we only know that he comes from probably this place, Salem, which could have been Jerusalem. We don't really know anything else about that, about where he comes from. And the question, why is he important, is quite interesting. Because in the Old Testament, particularly in the early books, if somebody is important, they tend to introduce them by saying, this is so-and-so, the son of so-and-so, the son of so-and-so, the son of so-and-so, the son of so-and-so. And they give you a massive long list and take it back to somebody really, really important in the Old Testament, like Abraham. They give you a massive genealogy, or it might take it back to Adam or something like that. But with this guy, they just say, his name's Melchizedek, he's the priest of Salem, he's the priest of God Most High, and he's the king of Salem. That's it. You don't get any more than that about him. Um, so sometimes things that aren't written can speak to us just as much as things that are. So because there isn't a massive genealogy, it kind of shouts, well, who is this guy? Why is, it, why is that not there? Um, but he is somebody really, really important. And then the last question is, what is it that he does? Well, firstly, he comes out to Abraham and he meets him just after him and his people have been on a big battle. And he nourishes them with he brings them bread and wine, kind of staple food, and they eat that, and Abraham pays to him a tithe. So he's somebody really important. 
he is, it's not long uh, after the flood in Genesis, the, the flood with Noah. So he's very probably one of a faithful few people who have remained faithful to God since the flood who Abraham meets at this point in Genesis. He's not some kind of, um, just kind of you know, teleported into the book and taken away. He's a normal, ordinary human being like you and me, who is a king, he's a priest, and he's faithful to God. And he introduces himself as the priest of God Most High. Now that's all kind of well and good. But then I thought, what is he not? So first of all, he's not a Levitical priest. Partly because as we find out in, in Hebrews, Levi hasn't been born yet. Okay, so it would be very difficult for him to be a Levitical priest because Levi, who all the priests are descended from, isn't born. Just hold that thought. So he's not a Levitical priest, which means that he wouldn't have been able to work in the temple or the tabernacle, which is where kind of God, God's presence resided and the, the priests did their work. But however, he is a priest of the real living God. And he's also a picture of something better to come because he is a priest and a king and he's timeless according to the the narrative in Hebrews because he hasn't got this father or mother or genealogy and that's just a way of the writer saying this guy is a picture of something better to come that will be timeless. Because if something hasn't got a father or mother and it doesn't have any descendants but it lasts forever you know, it's timeless, it goes on forever. And because he says he doesn't have a father or mother or he doesn't have a genealogy, that's just the, the Hebrews writer saying, this guy was a timeless, timeless, that's not a word, a timeless king and priest. And that is a picture of something better in the future. That is a picture of the best timeless king and priest to come, who we'll get onto, who you may have a clue who that might be. It's Jesus. So, and the idea of a king-priest is something that you couldn't have uh, in the Old Testament and under Judaism because the priests all came from Levi and the kings came from Judah and you couldn't be in both. So you couldn't have a kind of priest-king in the Old Testament system. And when Saul, who was a king, tried to offer it in the temple, he got in real trouble for it. So it wasn't a good idea for um, kings to try and like cross over to become priests. So that's vaguely who Melchizedek is as a priest. So the Levitical priesthood in the Old Testament, we need to know a little bit about this for some of the rest of it to make sense. As these were, these were God's priests. In the Old Testament, these were God's priests. They had amazing clothes. Right? When you read the Old Testament, you find that they had, particularly the great high priest, he had an amazing wardrobe. He had a big purple turban. But none of you have got one of those. Well, you might have, but I haven't. And I'd like one. He had a massive purple turban. He had a, a big fancy robe. And he had an amazing breastplate that had fancy jewels on it and 12 gold plates that had the names of the tribes of Israel engraved on it. So there'd been like Levi and Judah and Simeon and Reuben and the rest of them. It wouldn't say the rest of them. He'd have them all written down on their individual plates. And he would wear that. And he'd wear his turban and he'd wear his robe. But when he went into God's presence, either in the tabernacle or in the temple later on. But the problem with the priests, the problem with the Levitical priests in the Old Testament is that they were men just like you and me, really. They were imperfect people. No, they, they made mistakes. They did things wrong. They were temporary. They were going to die someday. They weren't going to live forever. And they were transitory. They were pointing towards something that would be permanent. But they weren't 
as a priesthood system, they weren't going to last forever either. They were pointing towards something that would be temporary. They were, they were kind of pointing towards a perfect priesthood that would last forever one day, who would have a perfect law. And their job in the, their job in the temple or in the tabernacle um, was to offer the sacrifices for the nation of Israel and for themselves. And I also found out, that I thought this was quite interesting when I was reading some stuff, it said there were no seats in the temple. And that, that, that never struck me before. But that is because the priests were really busy. You know, people would bring sacrifices kind of from dawn till dusk for the priest to sacrifice. If they put a, a seat in the temple, there'd be nothing you could do with it apart from walk past it. You know, they were on their feet all day doing these sacrifices, like, pouring, uh, like killing these animals, pouring the blood out, praying, sacrificing for themselves, sacrificing for you know, Joe Bloggs, the Israelite that turns up with his sacrifice for that day. It would be a really, really busy place. If you were a priest in the Old Testament, you would really hope that your shoes were tax deductible because you would be wearing the soles out on them day after day. So basically, in the Old Covenant, when an Israelite sinned unintentionally, they would have to bring an animal like a goat or a pigeon or something else and they would bring that to the priest he would take it the person would confess their sins and the priest would sacrifice the goat on their behalf to God covering their sin okay. however in the morning the priest would have had to do that for himself before he could do it for anybody else because there's no point somebody sinful sacrificing for somebody else who's sinful so he had to cover his sins and he could work and cover somebody else's sins with their sacrifice so it was a persistent job, and it was probably, I don't know if you can say this reverently or not, might have been a little bit dull and repetitive. Um, but if you really liked animals, no, maybe it still wasn't great because you were killing them all day long. But you get to see them at least. Um, so it might have been a bit dull. So, this is where the rucksacks come in. So, this is my rucksack. It's blue-ish and Berghaus. Very nice. Uh, and Hannah's been using it for university for a few years. So what would happen is, the, the person, an ordinary person like you or me, if we were in the, the old we'd do something wrong, and we'd feel guilty about it. We would feel you know, like we've got the weight of the world on our shoulders because we'd done something that God wasn't happy with. Our rucksack would essentially be a burden on our back, and it would be full of things that were really heavy. So what the, the sacrifice did, you'd go to the priest, you would confess your sin, and the priest would take your offering and he would sacrifice it before God. And in that process, the priest essentially is able to take away the weight of sin that is on the back of the people who have sinned, on the back of the people of Israel. So they go and they confess their sins, all one, two, three, four of their sins, and then you know, off they go and carry on their life. And they would do that as often as they sinned. Problem is that the, the sacrifice they offered only covered the sin and it took away their guilt for it. But the next time that they sinned, all that would happen is 
their guilt would build back up in a weight on their shoulders. Until, and they would go around with this you know, heavy burden of sin, until they went to the priest, took another goat or another ram or another pigeon, a couple of pigeons, whatever you like, and he would, they would sacrifice on his behalf, he would confess his sins, and that weight would be taken again from sin. And those sins would be covered by the blood of the sacrifices. And off he would go and live the rest of his life. And what they were doing, they were pointing forward to the day of a perfect priest turning up who would, who would sort all this out, who would sort out the sacrificial system, who would sort out the weight of guilt. So as we get into this, uh, into this chapter, he then comes on to talk a bit about Jesus. So this passage is full of comparisons for us. And he compares Jesus to this priest Melchizedek. And he says that one day you're going to get a priest who, like Melchizedek, is timeless. You're going to get a priest who is not from the tribe of Levi. And when you get a new priest, you're going to get a new law. Okay, So we see that in, in chapter 7 of Hebrews. He says, when there's a change of the priesthood, there's a change of the law. Kings couldn't become priests, and priests couldn't become kings. Like I said, when Saul tried it, he got into real bother. The thing is, in the Old Testament, regardless of your ability, if you were born into the tribe of Levi, at the age of either 20 or 25, if you were a male, if you were healthy, if you didn't have any defects, if you yeah, had two eyes, two legs, two arms, one nose, two ears, and a mouth, and probably some hair, you would become a priest. That would be your job for your life. For, for between kind of 20 and 50, you would be a priest. Whether you were good at it or bad at it, you just turned up. It was a hereditary priesthood. If you were the son of a priest, you would become a priest. Uh, and that's basically how it worked. And they, so that's why he says they became a priest, not on oath. But it was, they just were descendants of priests, so they became priests themselves. Whereas this new priest wouldn't be descended from priests, this great priest that he talks about, wouldn't be descended from a priest. But he goes to one of the Psalms, he goes to Psalm 110, using the words of David, and saying that this would be a priest forever. And he said that the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. He goes back to one of the Psalms, one of the Jewish writings of King David, and he says, this new priest will be a priest forever. He'll not be temporary, He'll not be hereditary. He won't just become a priest because his dad was a priest. He will be a new and better. He will be the best priest that you could possibly have. And the other problem with the Levitical priest is he says um, you know, that death prevented them from continuing, continuing in office. So when they either retired or died, new ones were like just shoved in when it was their birthday. So on their birthday this new priest would turn up in the temple or in the tabernacle and he'd work until he was 50 or he died. And so these priests were just always kind of coming in one end and going out the other end. They were, that's not a revolving door, but you know what I mean. They'd go in one end, they'd work their time and then they'd either drop off the perch or retire at the other end. What they're going to get in the future, this best priest that they will ever have, will be a permanent one who will last forever, like the picture of Melchizedek who doesn't have father or mother uh, or genealogy. He was meant to be a timeless priest. You're going to get this timeless, timeless priest who will be Jesus. And he'll not get it um, without an oath by uh, inheriting it 
but he will be a priest who comes into power with an oath from God that he's a priest forever. It says, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. That's what God says about this priest that is coming, that is Jesus. So he'll be permanent, he comes from God, and he will not die. He'll be able to be a priest who can do the work forever. He'll never need to be changed. You'll not turn up at the temple the next day, find somebody else there who's different to the one yesterday to do your sacrifice for you. Okay. Overtaking. Let's jump on to the next bit. Now some of you may know that there is a new series of Top Gear, or reasonably new series of Top Gear on, a, on BBC at the minute. Um, so Overtaking has nothing to do with that. But um, I just thought I'd mention it, just in case you didn't know, then you can go and catch up on iPlayer. Uh, all their jolly japes and antics. Like I said, I was going to use the word uh, the supersession or superseding, to, to, but it didn't fit on the slide. So we're going for overtaking. That's the idea that something that wasn't as good has been overtaken by something that is now best. So the idea is that some of the things in the past, some of the norms that they were used to, weren't as good as what God really wants for his people. God wants something that is perfect, and he wants something that is final. And he wants someone who is amazing, who can take the old ways and fulfill them and make them perfect forever. Now this is really important for the Jewish readers of this letter who are looking back to the past thinking, you know, that's all really good stuff. We could just go back for all that and enjoy it, what we know. But the writer said, if you go back, you're going to miss out on the stuff that is best. You're going to miss out on this person who is so much better than all those things in the Old Covenant because he fulfills all of that and he lives and reigns forever. So there are three things that we'll briefly look at that have been overtaken in this passage. The first one is the priests. We've looked at that. These priests, so all the things that are overtaken are overtaken for a reason that begins with I. The priests were overtaken because they were I'm perfect. They were imperfect. No, they weren't perfect. They were imperfect. So the priests were overtaken because they were imperfect men. Before they could offer sins to atone for Joe Bloggs in Israel, they had to offer sins to atone for their own sins, offer sacrifices to atone for their own sins. So they couldn't sacrifice for you or I until they'd sacrificed for themselves. I mean, that makes sense. Because if you have somebody that's going to go before God, you want to make sure that they are the kind of the holiest person that, it is, that can possibly be to represent you. So these were people who were kind of trained for it and they had sacrificed for their own sins and they would go and offer for the normal people like you and me. Um, but also we know that they were temporary like I said they would either die or retire and stop working uh, because once you're dead you can't work anymore um, and, yeah, and no priest could always sacrifice for you for all of your life because they were always changing there was always somebody different uh, working at a temple and this is where Jesus comes in to overtake the priests that were there the writer to the Hebrews says why are you going to go back to a system where the priests are sinful men there's this man Jesus and he doesn't need to sacrifice for his own sins. In verse 27 he says, unlike other high priests he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. Because this new high priest doesn't need to offer sacrifices for his own sins because he doesn't have any. This is a person who deserves to stand before God this is a person who is able 
to plead our case before God because he deserves to stand there because he is perfect. And also this person who will stand before God because he is sinless will never die. He'll be able to stand before God for you and me as our priest forever. So the writer of the Hebrews is saying, you know, if we have Jesus as our eternal priest, if you don't go back to the Levitical priests of the past, which are nowhere near as good as Jesus, they pointed towards him, you will have something that you cannot understand how good it is. The Levitical priests were great in their time, but Jesus is so much better. The priests of the past were imperfect. This priest, Jesus, is perfect. So the second thing he goes on to say, I can't remember if I've put these up. I did. Excellent. He goes on to say the law, that there'll be a change in the law, because the law of Moses was insufficient. That's why it's overtaken by something else. But the law of Moses was insufficient because it led to the persistent sacrificing for sin. You constantly had to go like day after day to the temple or to the tabernacle uh, and have your sins covered with the blood of, of whatever animal you could get your hands on to take. The writer wants the hearers to realise that to go back to the law of Moses is taking a step backwards from being under Jesus. Like I said, there were no, in the temple there weren't any seats. The priests were constantly busy to work at sacrificing for sin. However, we've seen in Hebrews um, that Jesus, who is our great high priest, is seated at the Father's hand, the Father's right hand. Jesus sits at the Father's right hand because his sacrifice is done. He doesn't need to do any more. He's done enough. He can sit down because his work is done. Jesus' sacrifice is perfect. And when they see that, he wants them to realise that, look, this person has offered a sacrifice that means, as a priest, he can sit down. I mean, if you would like writing a job description for some work and it said you'll be able to sit down at work you think well that's probably fair enough because I don't want to stand up all day but when you realise that this is a priest who can sit down because his work is finished that is an amazing thing to the Jewish people when they see how much better Jesus is they'll never want to return to the old way of trying to deal with their sin their sacrifices were persistent Jesus wasn't. And in Hebrews 7, we have one of the greatest truths, I think, in the whole Bible. It's, it's, yeah, it's, I just, when I read it, I thought, this is the verse that says to me, there are no more rucksacks because of this verse. This is a verse that, if it doesn't like fill you with joy and make you just think, you know, I can sleep easy because of that one verse, then none of them will. You know, it's just an amazing verse. So, let's find it. It's verse 27. If you want to read along with me. Verse 27 of Hebrews chapter 7, it says, Unlike other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. When I read it, I think, isn't it amazing that Jesus sacrifices once and for all? And the sacrifice that he offers is the sacrifice of himself. 
And if you're a Jewish person reading that, a person who's used to going to the temple every day, finding another goat, they must have run out of goats. You'd think pigeons would flee from them. It'd be wonderful. There'd be no pigeons around. But they would have to find these things to go and get their sins covered every single day. But if you read that as a person who's used to going to the temple with an animal, that you've got to get there somehow, and they smell, don't they? If he says, look, this one sacrifice is enough all of sin and he's offered it for you you don't even have to go and offer it yourself it's a sacrifice for sin that is once and for all so our true great high priest Jesus is an eternal priest who overtakes the Levitical priests and he is the sacrifice sacrifice that the priest brings and that sacrifices himself and that sacrifice is once and for all and this is news that just cannot get better. Okay? This is the news of the gospel. And this is why Jesus has a seat in heaven with the Father. It's because his work is finished. He can sit down. His sacrifice has been given. The Old Testament priests work continually. Jesus' work is finished. So what has this got to do with rucksacks? So under the Old Testament, under the Old Testament system of the Old Covenant, the system was you and I would have been born with a rucksack on our back metaphorically so we would have a rucksack on our back and every time we did something wrong in would go the kind of weight of that sin and we would feel guilt depending on what it was that we had done and all they would be able to do in the Old Testament was they would be able to come along every time you brought a sacrifice and take that weight of guilt out. But the difference with this is that no matter what you've done, so the writer of the Hebrews is saying whatever sins it is you've committed, when Jesus sacrifices once and for all, no longer does Jesus come and take out the bricks from your rucksack that weigh you down with sin. Jesus comes along and he takes your rucksack and he doesn't give it back. There is nowhere for the weight of sin to last in you. You know, the guilt of sin, it can't, it can't hold anywhere because you've got nothing to put it in. I mean, you might have pockets, but you can't put sin in your pockets. You can only put it in rucksacks. And you haven't got a rucksack. That is the news of this new priest who sacrifices once and for all, and it covers all sin for all time place where the enemy would come where the devil would come and say oh you've done that, you should feel really really guilty about that well as a Christian it's gone isn't it because of Jesus' sacrifice you can't come and point to it anywhere because Jesus' sacrifice was once and for all Jesus bears all our sin I don't know if this is irreverent but on the cross Jesus hangs all of our rucksacks on himself and dies the death, taking away all of our sin, past, present and future. We don't have to go to the temple and sacrifice for it. We don't have to ask Jesus to, to die day after day after day after day after day for the sins that we do today and tomorrow and the day after. When he died, he died for all of our sin. If you're used to going to the temple, sacrificing day after day, this would be amazing news in itself. And the animal rights people would be just overjoyed. And as Christians, we should be too. So the next thing that is overtaking... Let's run through some of these. 
is the covenant. So this is the old covenant. Jesus fulfills the old covenant of sacrifice, bringing it to the great high priest, and he brings it about with a new covenant. The old covenant was overtaken. The eye letter is because it was impotent. It didn't have the power to deal finally with sin. It had the power to cover it, but it didn't have the power to deal with it. It was just all pointing forward to Jesus coming and being our great saviour, our great high priest, our great sacrifice, who would cleanse sin forever, not just cover it. And this means that for you and me, our sin is gone, our rucksacks are gone, there's nowhere for our sins to gather or pile up. And this brings me to my last thing. What is Jesus up to? And it is this question that for the readers of Hebrews that the first time when they first got this letter I think if they knew the answer to this question there'd be no way that they'd want to pack in Christianity because they'd know that Jesus was up to something really important. If they knew what Jesus was up to if they had it right in their heads they'd know, they would have known that Jesus was definitely going to save them from their sins that what God, what God promises them would come true he loves them so much and, and he loves them so much to take them from where they are even if they're, they feel guilty for their sin whatever it is that's going wrong he, feels, he loves them so much he's going to take them from that and change them into the people that he really wants them to be if they had assurance from God that these things would come true there'd be no way that they would possibly want to slip away or drift away from Jesus so what they needed was an answer to this question. What is Jesus up to? This was probably one of the original titles I had for, for this sermon, but I, uh, I thought I'd go with there are no rucksacks instead, because I thought it felt a bit more holy. Um, so when, when Jesus died and he was put into the ground, he didn't stay dead. Okay? Jesus rose again from the dead because God was uh, satisfied with his sacrifice. And after that, not long after that, Jesus didn't die again. He's ascended into heaven to be at the Father's right hand. So Jesus is our living saviour. He's not a, a dead figure from the past that we can look back to and say, wasn't he wonderful? Let's all try and be a bit like him. We have a risen saviour who is alive. He's not dead and he's up to something. Uh, verse 25 of Hebrews says, Therefore he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. So firstly and amazingly this passage says that you, ordinary people, the first readers of this when they hear the words that you can come to God through him you no longer come to God through a priest, you come to God directly because of Jesus. They don't have to go to a special kind of human person, they go through Jesus their saviour and they have access to God. So first, one of the first things that Jesus is up to is Jesus has given them access to God. You don't have to go to his secretary or to his PA or anything like that. You can get an appointment with God anytime you want because Jesus is always before God. Jesus is sat at the Father's right hand and because of God's spirit in Christians, we are, uh, Ephesians tells us that we are united with Jesus. We are in Jesus and that means that you and I forever are at the Father's right hand. When we pray, we pray to God through Jesus who is at the Father's right hand. 
So we have access to God. So that's the first key thing. We get, to, we get access to God. For the early readers of Hebrews, if they go back to Judaism, they don't have personal access to God through Jesus. They have access to God through a priest who is also imperfect, who will die one day. But if they, as Christians, access God through Jesus, they have a priest who is perfect, not imperfect, under a law that is perfect, not insufficient, under a covenant that is powerful, not impotent. They have access to God through the real, living, ascended Jesus. Secondly, another thing that Jesus is up to uh, is that he lives to intercede for them. So for the readers of this, when they get this, they know that they go to the priest and the priest intercedes for them with God, but the priest intercedes for himself before he can intercede for them with God, if that makes sense. So he sorts himself out, then he can pray for them. This says that not only do we have access to God, but Jesus intercedes for us. And now to make, to try and understand that a little bit, um, I thought I'd go for an an extra really holy um, kind of picture. So if you like whiskey, or if you don't, um, or if you, you know, drink it or not, um, I quite like it. And if you want to know what to buy me for my birthday or Christmas, October 24th or uh, 25th of December, get those down. Um, it's, a, it's a potent drink, isn't it? Whiskey is quite a strong drink compared to other alcoholic drinks. And it's potent because what they do is they, they get the large amount of fluid and they distill it, so they kind of heat it up, and whatever comes off first is the strongest stuff, and they distill out the strongest stuff, and they, they sell that at like a million pounds a bottle to the Scottish people because um, they really love it. So that's the strongest stuff. And now I'm not saying that Jesus is sat at the Father's right hand drinking whiskey, but what Jesus is doing is that Jesus is sat at the Father's right hand and he is distilling our prayers and our worship to the Father through himself. So when we make a a mess of what we're saying or we sing out of tune, Jesus is our kind of, our man in heaven, tuning our worship and distilling our prayers so that it makes sense to God and he's, he's, he's glorified through it. That's the second thing that Jesus is up to. And lastly, well, sort of lastly, and kind of rucksackly, Jesus is the guarantee of our salvation. Okay, we'll get to the rucksack in a second. And that's because Jesus, we're bound to him by the Spirit. So we're united with Jesus by the Holy Spirit. We have a standing in the Father's presence in heaven even now because that's where Jesus is, even now. And provided Jesus is good enough and perfect enough to stay there forever, which he is, we have a certainty of our future salvation, because Jesus is that good. So long as Jesus is before the Father, we are before the Father. You know, if for any reason Jesus was going to be kicked out of the Father's presence for, you know, tweaking his brother's ear or, you know, not sharing his sweets or whatever it is, no, we could be kicked out of the Father's presence, but none of those things are going to happen. Jesus is the guarantee of our salvation. For the first readers of Hebrews, to get that into their heads, they would realise there's no point in leaving him behind. Because if you have something that is dead set and guaranteed, and it's good, well, you would never leave it. If you could offer like, a gambler a dead cert 100 to 1, they would take it every time. They'd tell everything they have and put all they could on it, because it was dead cert. Jesus is a dead cert. 
so the last thing kind of to finish with and to tie up the rucksack metaphor hopefully entirely is under the old covenant uh, the priests the priesthood in the old covenant priesthood bricks were taken out of rucksacks sins were atoned for guilt was taken away under the new covenant the rucksacks themselves are taken away and destroyed but this has a, an amazing practical outworking for Christians for the Christians who first read this and for Christians today the Bible tells us that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus okay. the problem is that we don't often live like that we often feel really really guilty of things that we've done wrong in the past we rake over old sins the problem is that we don't have a rucksack for those sins to land in and when the devil points at you and says how can you be a Christian because you've done X, Y and Z and you go yeah I have haven't I I've done, done that really awful thing you know, I've, I can't believe I did that sin in the past isn't it awful the problem is that we're holding on to the sins that Jesus has forgiven us for we, we carry them around and if we're, if we're doing that we're literally holding on to things that Jesus has been willing to forgive us for in the past and he says they're done, they're gone, they're dealt with you are united with me, we're in the Father's presence I'm going to distill all your prayers and your worship so it sounds great so why do you need to carry on beating yourselves up and, and raking over old sins, he says whatever you've got, if the devil is making you feel guilty for those sins, if you've confessed them if you've repented put them down, now I've dealt with it you don't need to worry about that anymore Jesus says don't mope over your old sins rejoice in the fact that I have sacrificed myself once and for all I am in the Father's presence now and forever and because of the Spirit you are there too okay so as we finish I'm going to ask you a question and then I'll read a passage from Matthew and then I'll pray so the question is fairly simple. Do you ever feel really burdened by guilt or by shame from sin? I mean, whether you're a Christian or not. Jesus says that you don't have to. And Jesus is longing to proclaim over our lives and over the lives of everyone that you are free from guilt and sin and shame. The difficulty with that for us is that it requires a response of humility not of arrogance or pride. The response is, basically, geez, I've tried all sorts of ways to empty my own rucksack. I've tried all sorts of ways not to feel guilty. I've tried all sorts of things um, to, to make myself feel okay again. And I've realised that I'm completely incapable of doing that. And you're the only one who's capable. So please help me and forgive me for that. If that's how you feel, Jesus is willing to answer that prayer and to forgive you for your sins if you repent and you turn to him. So I'm just going to read you one passage from Matthew and I'll pray. And Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. So let's pray, and then we'll sing. 
Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. Father, we thank you for this 